1: If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats
3: or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. ba da ba At participating McDonald's.
4: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey. <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Susanna Lipscomb, who's Professor of History at the University of Roehampton, as well as being a well-known presenter of history TV programmes. Her most recent book, The Voices of Neem draws on her archive research to reveal what life was like for women in 16th and 17th century France and that was the subject of her interview with fellow historian Dan Jones which took place at Susanna's home a little while back.
3: Well hello listeners to the History Extra podcast it's um, a real privilege and for me a great pleasure to be sitting uh, at home with Professor Susanna Lipscomb. Um, just to set the scene for you, we're in her rather wonderful study office at home, and uh, I'm very happy to be holding in my hands a copy of Professor Lipscomb's new book. Don't laugh, it's your actual title. Uh, the Voices of Neem: Women, Sex and Marriage in Reformation Languedoc. Now, I know a lot of you will know Susanna from uh, TV shows in which she plays Batman to my Robin. Um, she's a wonderful TV presenter. Uh, she's written several books before, mostly both, I think, on Tudor England. How many books have you written?
0: Um, this is the fifth.
3: This is the fifth? Yeah. She written more books than I realised. Um, most recently one on the will of King Henry VIII.
0: And between those, a tiny little one on witchcraft.
3: And a tiny little one on witchcraft, of course. I've forgotten about that one. Well, The Voices of Neem... Um, is a very special book, and uh, I don't want you to take my word for that. Take the word of Professor Sir Simon Sharma, who says, and this is quoted on the back cover, uh, Susanna Lipscomb's Extraordinary Voices of Neem performs that miracle which only the most powerful historians can execute, using a dense archive to reawaken lost lives. This is a beautiful book, grippingly written and destined to become a classic of social history. I mean, how do you top that? I suppose the first thing to ask... I'm going to call you Susie because it feels more informal. Um, And since you are Batman and I'm Robin. Susie, tell us about Voices of Neem. What is it all about?
0: Okay, so it's all about women living in the 16th century in the south of France. And it is um, an insight into the lives of very ordinary women of... Um, you know, what we'd call sort of working class, um but you know, the wives of butchers and bakers and candlestick makers. And uh, it tells incidents from their lives. So we a lot of these stories have come. Out of a set of records known as the Consistory, so in the south of France, um, in the second half of the the 16th century, lots of people converted to Protestantism, Um, and certain towns became bastions of this new faith, where they were also known as Huguenots. And Nîmes is one of those towns. um, Montpellier, another. Montauban, another. In contrast to, say, the Catholic towns of Avignon or Toulouse. And where people converted, they would establish a church that was a sort of Presbyterian system which was governed by elders. So lay elders, ordinary members of the community, all men who had a role in um, running the church, and also, above all, presiding over um, morality in the town. And at a time of religious war, it was thought that preserving the morality of the town was the way to keep them from God's wrath and when you're trying to control morals in the 16th century at least, above all, that means you're trying to control women. And so as a result of this um sort of desire for a moral status of their town, we have all sorts of records of interrogations and reprimand of women. And in the stories they tell, we get insight into their lives. And so this is what this book is about.
3: So I think for a lot of listeners, um, they may be slightly surprised that you've written a book about 16th century France, because I think. A lot of us would associate you with work on the Tudor court, on Henry VIII, on Elizabeth. That's what you've done a lot of television work about. You've you've written books about this. Why did you choose to write about uh, women in the south of France in the 16th century?
0: So, in fact, this work on the French archives predates the work on the Tudors. Um, It was what I did my doctorate on uh, years ago, and then I became a curator at Hampton Court and started writing about Henry VIII. So we're still in the same century, just different ends of it and um, across the channel, um, and and actually different levels of society rather than Henry VIII and the court. We're talking about very ordinary people, but I came back to it because I felt like I hadn't finished with with them yet, with these women, um, and I wanted to bring their stories to life. And I had access to this amazing set of records that. A couple of other historians who are living have read and uh, written about. There's a big French doctoral um, thesis, which is, um, you know, the sort of magnum opus, which is a very quantitative look at these cases. And then there's a an American historian called Raymond Menzer who's done a little bit with them. But most people haven't because they're buried in a provincial archive and also, there's been a sense that what these records could tell us about was the sort of ecclesiastical history, the status of the church, not interesting things about social history. So, once I had discovered that actually they had insights to tell, I wanted to dig deeper with them and find out other records that could complement them.
3: So, this is an archive um, down in the south of France that you started working with when? So, back in
0: 2002. So, I'm that old. Um, so, <laughs> it, yeah, a long time. So, there's an archive in Nîmes, there's one in Montauban, one in Montpellier, there's some stuff in Paris. I mean, there are various archives, but yes, a set of records.
3: How did you come across these archives? What drew you to them?
0: So, I was interested when I was at university, um, we were asked to write a comparative history essay so my last year. Oxford was experimenting with this form of getting you to write about a theme. In two periods of history. So I wrote about religious violence in 16th century France and in 19th, 20th century India. And um, one of the things that emerged as a kind of the basis of religious violence is often that women are the target of it. and of course, we see this in warfare. Since, for example, in Bosnia, um, rape is a as a method of warfare. So, uh, I became interested in women in the in the religious wars and started to think about doing something on that. And then it was just sort of poking around. Um, it came from a bit of a uh, a tip off from a man called Philip Benedict, a very very good historian, and Robin Briggs, who became my doctoral supervisor, that perhaps these. Court records might have something to say that's of use because obviously there are we've had decades of work where people have worked with court records, most famously, of course, Montaigne, the story of a, a medieval um, French village in which there was the Cathar heresy at large, and have produced real riches about social and ordinary life. And they said, "Well, maybe there'll be something in those." And so I went looking.
3: Tell us about the archive. What does it look like?
0: Well, I've been going to it for so long that it has changed. So when I first went there, it was this tiny little room um, and uh, it was, uh, you know, and in fact the one in Montebon still is this and you you wait for quite a while for them to go and find the manuscript you're interested in. Quite a lot of the time, um, early on, they wouldn't let me see the actual manuscripts, they'd only let me see the microfilm. And that was a real problem because French archives... Seem to be filled with genealogists who want to go and find out all of their family history, and so there was always a bit of a fight. I think English for...
3: archives are quite like that as well. Aren't
0: they? <laughs> well, I'd, perhaps so, but I certainly, you know, turning up earlier and earlier to join the queue so that I'd get a microfilm machine. But then, anyway, as time went on, they they got they got they got confident that I wasn't about to sort of destroy the things and started letting me out the manuscripts themselves. And these days, they're like, oh yes, please. <laughs> so
3: are these so been working with a, li- a little bit are they are they f- particularly fragile I mean what, what what do they look like yeah the so they
0: are uh, books bound um in vellum um calf leather and their parchment um they're very beautiful the handwriting is p- particularly bad so one of the reasons people haven't read them before is that the scroll is often quite hard to decipher and they are to my mind some of the most beautiful things you can imagine Um, so they're not, I wouldn't say they're fragile, but, um, you know, you've got page after page of, of this scroll. Do you want to see a picture of them?
3: Uh, Well, I'm looking, I've got the book in my hand at the moment and there are actually some, there are some rather beautiful images. I, these are, I'm showing, these are, I think the pictures of the documents that you've been using. So yeah, they're in, in quite a, um, I mean, it's neater than my handwriting. So I've got quite a low bar for what, what, uh, (laughs) what decent handwriting looks like. But I imagine, as with any record, it takes a while to get your eye in to not only the language, but also the the hand.
0: That's right. So it's 16th century French um, and as different from modern French as 16th century English is from ours. Um, And it's written by people who are literate and who, as you say, in fact, I think the one you're just looking at is quite a nice hand. Some of them are better than others, but they aren't very literate. So, for example, they... Punctuation is not often used and pronouns are easily confused between different people. And so it's quite hard to keep the, the hang of what's going on. And of course, so this is a scribe writing down um in the courtroom. Um it's not a courtroom exactly, but it I'm technically, but come back to that. In the courtroom, writing down what is happening um in front of them and translating it very quickly into the third person possibly translating it into French. Um, uh, much of the proceedings may have taken place in Occitan, the local dialect, and occasionally they quote from that. Or they may have been asking questions in French and then getting responses in Occitan. Um, and probably these are the clean copies, uh, rough copies were made
3: but not kept. So you're dealing with legal records, which um I think most historians who've come across legal records know that they, they present a, a unique set of problems. But maybe we'll, we'll come on to that in a minute. Um, Let's set the scene more broadly um, as we work our way into this topic. Um, Tell us what the south of France, the Languedoc, was like in the late 16th century. You've mentioned a little bit that there are are Protestant towns, there are Catholic towns, there are obviously tensions connected to the Reformation. But as you do in the book, so so evocatively, set the scene of of this countryside. What's going on? What does it look like? What is it like to live there?
0: Well, if anyone's been down to the south of France, you'll have a sense that it is this very beautiful and in some ways quite wild place. We're talking about an area between um, the Camargue, which is a sort of area of marshland south of Nîmes, which connects up to the coast, and the Cévennes, which are a sort of slightly barren hills with these plateaus on which the sh- uh, sheep farming takes place um and we've got gorse growing there and olives and cypress it's very mediterranean um it gets very hot in the summer and um pretty cold in the winter um there are famously the mistral wind um which drives people mad is present in february i lived there for uh, seven months um and I'm surprised I moved back, actually. Um, and at the time, um, it was, you could get some wine, but the wine wasn't as good as it is today. At the, and but,
3: at the time, in the, in the 16th in century, the 16th not century. the time that you were living Yes,
0: there.
3: yeah. Right. <laughs> Why was the wine not so good?
0: Because they didn't know about late harvesting and keeping it till the sugar had matured and um, the grapes had gotten um, more sweet. So the
3: wine um, so, that one would drink today is markedly superior to the...
0: Absolutely. So only since the 18th century have they had that knack, really. Um right as I understand it. But anyway, that's an aside. Uh, And and the other thing about it is if you go down to visit Nîmes today, you can actually see the print or or the sort of footprint of the original 16th century city. It's still the old town. Now it's kind of shield-shaped town um, and marked by some Roman ruins. So at the bottom of Nîmes, there is this amazing amphitheatre, Les Arènes, which is... um, I think, or you know, can compete with anything you can find in Rome. And there's also an amazing um, Roman temple, temple called the Maison Carrée. So there's these Roman ruins, and then a, a fountain, um, a, a watchtower. So Nîmes was properly mapped out. And when I went to, to to live there, I actually managed to live in the centre of this old town, coincidentally on the on the road that the consistory met on, um, which is rather lovely. And at the time, it, however, was a place of great tumult because um, outside of Nîmes, um, intermittently, there was warfare raging. There were times during the 1580s, for example, when if you were a Protestant and you were found outside of Nîmes, you might be killed by Catholic forces that were ravaging the area because across France there was um, this battle between the Protestants and Catholics, often happening at a, an elite level, but also being carried out um in the fields of France, um between ordinary people,
3: and I suppose to set this in even broader historical context, this is also an area that has successively been kind of ridden through by English armies during the Hundred Years' War previously. Um, I mean, as they're fighting Burgundians Armagnacs, is, you know so there, there is a history in this part of France of, uh, warfare instability, um, political and military unrest
0: and heterodoxy. so this is uh, this area is a stone's throw from where the Cathar heresy grew up um a couple of a few centuries earlier, and um there's there's a sort of independent spirit. Languedoc is now, you know subsequently part of France, but there's a sense that it has its own identity and it, it adopts a, a new point of view,
3: which is there in its name?
0: exactly the Langdoc, the language in which you say yes with the word och as opposed to hui, hu, uh, the language of the north
3: so culturally quite different from northern France with this history of turbulence warfare religiously heterodox and you know and, and splits between as the Reformation comes along Catholic and Protestant okay so th- this is this this is the area in which uh, we're operating let's hone in a little bit then on Nîmes itself and the consistory which uh, forms the, the, the sort of spine of the material that you've worked with in this book tell us a little bit about what that was what its purpose was um how it regulated morality and uh, and legality in society
0: so the consistory was the governing body and welfare center of the local church um it handed out money to poor people, um, and it determined um, things like whether the windows in church could be opened on a Sunday. Um, but it also had this role in moral reprimand and supervision. So it was made up of between ten and eighteen men, um, the ministers of the church, um, a number of deacons who were sort of a slightly higher a post who were responsible for poor relief, and they oversaw the elders who were appointed to. Um, oversee a number of streets local to them. And so they were literally observing their neighbors, looking out for. Um, any wrongdoing, people going into other people's houses at the dead of night.
3: So this is sort of institutionalised curtain twitching?
0: Exactly. In fact, what it does is it goes further than that. It's not just the elders who end up doing it, it's neighbours who end up denouncing each other. And so this culture of prurience and um, uh, voyeurism really sort
3: of grows up. And where does this spring from? I mean, obviously we're talking about um, a time and a place where there isn't a police force to, um, well, to police law and and the areas in which that impinges on morality uh, is there a is this a sort of religious police of the sort that we might imagine now in countries like Saudi Arabia
0: yes so this is exactly this so um in fact t- to be specific it isn't doesn't have legal power this consistory technically it's only a, a it's a religious court is even stretching it slightly so it's a religious tribunal before which people are called but a lot of the people who are on the consistory are also people in positions of power um in the town council or who are consuls. That's how the, the these southern towns are governed. And so, in practice, there is some um heft behind what the consistory is doing. And
3: is this something that's uh, particular to the Protestant reformed church, or was it something that existed before the Reformation as well?
0: It is especially developed. um it by the protestants i mean because it involves so many lay people in the governance of society which isn't really something that the roman catholics um would have adopted and also there's a specific reason why we don't have this sort of um sort of records from roman catholic areas although we do have um some bishops tribunals we don't have it from you know ordinary people policing each other because people's sins are dealt with in the privacy of the confessional as opposed to being aired before this panel of judges who will, will, you know, lay judges, but judges all the same, who will then determine what punishment should be
3: imposed. Right, so we have a sort of semi-official um, moral police, neighbourhood watch type organisation, institutionalised in the consistory. Consistory. What sort of cases would come before this, um, this body?
0: So... Any form of um, moral failing, dancing, comes up quite a lot. You should blasphemy. see me dance.
3: That's, that's, <laughs> it's a genuine moral sin to see me dance.
0: Well, you'd have certainly been before them. Um, and, in fact, you'd also have been there for your speech because... For my speech. You've been very clean so far today, but generally speaking, um, any... Profanity. Blasphemy would, would call somebody before the consistory. Um,
3: Serious stuff. Like if I ever I dropped something on my foot, oh, damn, that hurt. Yes, that That's thing. enough.
0: Yeah. Uh, evoking the devil. People did that in speech sometimes um, um, and that was considered very serious. The devil take this
3: copy of The Voices of Neem, which just landed on my foot. Yes, you did, you'd,
0: you'd be in trouble now. I'd right. right up before the beat. Yes, and we've, okay. got, you know, we've got a recording of it, so we know it's... So,
1: so, so dance, <laughs> got proof.
0: Um, dancing. Dancing. Swearing. Um, swearing. Swearing. Um, all manner of um, sexual misbehaviour, so uh, adultery, obviously, uh, sex before marriage. Um, th- when we do one or two cases of um, homosexual activity uh, disappear very quickly from the pages uh, um, because they're considered so serious, they're sent to um, be considered in front of the the actual legal uh, magistrates. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, for heterosexual uh Uh, misdemeanors certainly appear a lot. Um, And also quarrels, when people have fought with each other, that appears a lot as well. Um, People going to Roman Catholic services, uh, even if they've stood at the back and not participated. um, There's a whole, you know, so if they've carried out superstitious rituals, if they've gone to see um, uh, one of the bohemians they're called, the sort of soothsayers or um, local fortune tellers, you know, there's basically a lot of activity that will bring you before the consistory.
3: So this would bring you up before the consistory. And what sort of punishments could they hand down?
0: The consistory itself could only hand down spiritual punishments, i.e. shaming punishments like being called before the consistory itself and having to say that you're sorry and that you shouldn't have done it.
3: So actually being called before the consistory is punishment in itself in a way?
0: To be interrogated isn't, but then to have to perform the sort of ritual of of apology is. Um, but worse still is to do so on a Sunday in front of the entire congregation. This is a point at which everybody, nearly everybody, I would have thought, is going is required to go to church every Sunday, whether they are or not is another thing, but they are required to be at church. Um, they're not allowed to have shops open during services, for example. Some of the elders go and walk around and check they're not doing that. Um, so everybody's there, and in front of everybody, you have to say what you've done. If you refuse to do that, or if you uh, commit to the sin again, then they might excommunicate you from the church, which doesn't sound... Like a big deal, but actually means that you're thrust out of both social and economic community, and you can't do business with people, um, you can't socialise with members of the church. So it is actually quite serious. You go to hell. Well, there's that too. Yes.
3: Worse than worse than anything, that isn't it? Hell.
0: They certainly believe so. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, and this is, I mean, I mean, only being half-flippant, this is a very excommunication in a predominantly. Christian religious age is a serious punishment because your mortal soul is in jeopardy as well as no one will talk to you down the pub.
0: Yeah, and it's very hard to believe uh, to sort of to get one's head around how um, deeply they feel um, the need to be seen to be respectable. I mean, there's, there was, um, John Ronson did that book a few years back about being shamed online. And I very think that's part, the yeah. only sort of comparison that we can have. It, the, the shame factor is very, very high. Um, to be shamed in front of your community and then to um, think that this is going to have eternal consequences is very serious indeed.
3: Well, I think you pick up on a good point by mentioning that Ronson book, which was uh, sort of, I, I guess, the thesis in, in Ronson's book is that uh, the forum for public shaming, in in some sense, today has moved on to the the internet and principally on social media sites. Do you think it's the case that every society, in some way, has these kind of shaming uh, forums and and rituals and mechanisms? I mean, is that is that just a part of society? And is what we're seeing in Neem, it's expressed through the consistory?
0: I think that seems like a plausible hypothesis. I mean, perhaps there was a period where before social media, where we thought that we were past all that. And, you know, it's absolutely fine to have children outside of marriage. And it's absolutely fine to, to have uh, relationships with anyone you've, well, you've except fancied you, had, or, yeah, you
3: know, you had the tabloid press, which would, you know, gleefully, as I remember growing up in the 90s, you know, a, a moral scandal, you know, shutting you whatever in the fridge door or having a, a kid with a that's the... That's true. I suppose would,
0: for most, for most ordinary people wouldn't appear in the tabloid press, but, but certainly a certain class of uh if you had any sort of public standing at all you might do Mm. um and so i suppose that's the equivalent so perhaps yes i mean i can't think of uh, that was that was my best guess at a time when we might have said we were past it but we weren't we we, it was just waiting to to make a a return
3: okay so let's get back to um the specifics of neem we we have this organization it can shame you it can punish you. Talk to us a little bit about women in society in the south of France at this time, because that's what you you focus on using this book. It's it's uh, partly, a, a well, it's a case studies that draw out um, aspects of women's lives more generally through their interaction with the consistory. So tell us a bit about women in the south of France.
0: Okay, so women in the 16th century, generally speaking, are operating at a disadvantage to men. I mean, this is a patriarchal society in which women have no uh, official positions of power um that they cannot hold uh um you know they don't have roles in church they don't have roles in um in the law um in government um they don't own anything after marriage it all belongs to their husband um they cannot operate a business except as a widow um and and so it goes on and so it's a situation in which in all sorts of ways physical um beliefs about women's lack of strength and lack of mental power um the sort of legal status of women um and their economic status women are subservient to men
3: and is it the case that this has you know by the late 16th century got worse i mean you write in the book that the reformation regenerated patriarchy um controlling morality was about controlling women is this something that uh, has got sort of qualitatively worse for women since the Reformation arrives in France?
0: So this is a finding originally from um, Professor Linda Roper and her work on in 16th century Germany. There was a sense at one point that people thought that Reformation might have meant things were better for women. Suddenly, you know, they had an opportunity to be considered and valorised um, as worthy through their role as wife and mother. But in actual fact... All it does by saying that a woman's worth is in those things is to confine her to those roles, particularly. Um, so there's very much a sense that things are getting worse in that in the late 16th century. We see, well, this is a period, of course, where we see people being accused of witchcraft. We see um, um, in both France and England uh, the crime of infanticide comes to the fore and women are accused of being scolds. There is a, a sense in which women acting independently, speaking in ways that are considered um, dangerous or doing things which can, which bring them power at this time are making men a bit alarmed.
3: So yet another bad time to be a woman in history.
0: It's a very bad time to be a
3: woman. Quite a lot of them. Now, is it the case that proportionally more women appeared before the consistory? I mean, did it, did it take a particular interest in um, in policing women's lives? Or is this just the area you focused on with your work?
0: I'm not sure to to give a statistic in terms of proportionately, but I would say that because women are considered to be the source of sin, um, going back to Tertullian saying that, you know, Eve's the devil's gateway, you know, we've got this very much that if the sexual sin, obviously it's the woman who's caused it. It's the woman who's at fault. Now the consistory are more egalitarian in their punishment and their justice in that they do call men before the court, whereas other courts don't necessarily do so. Um, for example, one of the other sources I look at is a register of criminal sentences and there's a womanizer called Pierre Delhost um, who uh, is, comes up a few times in having slept with various people and, um, But the punishments are doled out just to the women in, um, this is in the town of Montebon, and the town consuls are punishing the women. The men are mentioned, they know who they are, but there's no punishment given to them. So the consistory is different in that it's actually even summoning the men before the court, but still a lot of cases like this, the focus is on on the women's behaviour.
4: Coming up on the History Extra podcast.
0: Well, also what's interesting about it, as you said, is Isabel Isvier is a Catholic and she is trying to use the Protestant consistory to get a Protestant.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting...
0: man to marry her
3: now what i love most of all about voices of neem about your, your book on all of this is um that there is this real sense that you've got right into the archives and pulled out some extraordinary cases um and so i'd like to talk about a few of of, of them in this in their specifics and in their detail and and maybe we should start with the case that you opened the book with um Which is the case of uh, Gillette de Girardet. Yes, thank you. Um, Who you open the book sort of with this wonderful scene of her refusing to, or coming before the consistory, being told she ought to marry this fella uh, that she clearly doesn't want to. Um, And she says, I'm not going to do that because guess what? I'm already married to Jesus Christ. Now, when I first read this, I thought, well, she must be a nun. Because that 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 was the sort of way of framing it, but that's the sort of medievalist in me um, talking. Tell us a bit about this case. What was Gillette up to, um, and why did she go around claiming to be married to Christ?
0: This is a wonderful case because uh, what people have thought at the time is that you know marriage is the horizon of a woman's hopes and dreams in the 16th century, and that a woman choosing not to marry is bucking that trend completely. So um she is an 18-year-old um living in Egmont, which is a lovely walled town uh, um, south of Nîmes, just on the edge of the Camargue. And she has, by some people's accounts, promised to marry a man called Antoine Dumois, um, but she swears that she hasn't. Um And Rumour has gone around that she said she's married to somebody else. And so the consistory ask her who she says she's married to, and this is when she says she's married to Jesus Christ. Um and it big is
3: revi- big reveal, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Here is it, you're never gonna guess.
0: <laughs> and it was a it- big guy. <laughs> the uh, the consistory obviously weren't very happy about this because, as far as they were concerned, they were the ones who mediated the relationship between God and Woman in this case, and uh, certainly you can't have young girls suddenly saying that they have some sort of special relationship with God that hasn't been, you know, approved by the church. Um, And it also flies in the face of the fact that if she has said she will marry, the Consistory is very concerned about engagements being properly enacted and marriage being properly enacted. And if you have promised to marry somebody under all of the sort of right conditions, soberly, without compulsion, um, made in the presence of witnesses, etc., it is as binding as a marriage vow. So it is uh, something of great concern to them. So what's going on is her... Father had just died, um and um, she um, ha- apparently had been confronted by some of the men of the town, all considerably older than her, uh, who are related to this man that claims to be married to her. Um, and they had really, I think, wanted to get from her certain um of her her father's estate, uh, a raft that had been lent out to them, which is important when you're in the, the you know the the marshlands of the Camargue to go fishing or whatever. Um, and they uh, force her into a situation where in her sort of grief-stricken moment she will promise to marry this man. Um, But she denies it completely. She's asked by the consistory if she has promised to marry this chap and she says no. And they said, well, but, but, but didn't he give you a ring? And she said, oh, oh, well, yes, he did, but it wasn't in the name of marriage. It was in the name of friendship. And do you still have it? No, I've thrown it away. It's not a thing of much consequence. And so she's, she's you know, trying to deny what happened. And the other thing is that in the situation in which the engagement happened, um, she consistently said she would marry if God wished it. So although she doesn't want to marry Antoine Dumas by saying she's married to Jesus Christ and even at the time of the engagement by saying she would only do it if God wanted it she would marry when God wanted it to happen etc etc she has used a narrative to the consistory in saying that this is about God's judgment um and that it's not right for her to marry him which won't stand up but she thinks perhaps it will
3: what was her fate
0: her fate unfortunately in this instance does not turn out um as she wished it um In the end, there are a host of witnesses saying she made these promises, um, and that is good enough for the consistory to force her into the match. Now, interestingly, if she had said what she said to a friend, as comes out in one part of the testimony, if she had said before the consistory that she had been forced to promise to marry Antoine Dumas, she might have had better grounds for getting out of it, because the consistory doesn't believe in forced marriage. It believes that you have to consent wholly. But she never says that before the consistory. She takes another line of defence, this one about being married to Jesus Christ, that makes her look impertinent. And so her fate, of course, is to be forced to do what the men of the town want her to do.
3: Why do you think she went for such a, you know, it's pretty bold defence?
0: I don't know. I mean, it's a theocratic society. You think perhaps perhaps she thought, that you know, appealing to um, divine reasoning or to stressing the nature of her faith, that that prevented her from this uh, worldly match would have been powerful enough. Um, Or or maybe it's not calculated at all. Maybe she really did feel uh, in her heart of hearts that that was was the dominant relationship of her life and that she didn't have the energies to give to this marriage.
3: Now, a lot of the cases that uh, you've discovered in these archives that you've worked with, that you've investigated, you've written up in Voices of Neem, are to do with marriage and are to do with disputes about, hey, you said you were getting married to me. Yeah, well, I was drunk, you know, whatever the, the case may be. And and it's it's this area of uh, male and female interaction that come, seems to come up in your work again and again um, for obvious reasons. So I, there's a, another example I wanted to talk to you about, which is uh, concerns Isabelle Vielle, um Who's a Catholic girl who forces a recalcitrant Protestant man to marry her, and uh, there's a sort of um, a, a rather good third character in this, which is a sort of hellcat mother-in-law as well. I, I seem to um, I seem to remember. So perhaps you could t- tell us about this one because this kind of flips the previous example in the sense that uh, where we had you know with Gillette who said no, no, I'm married to Jesus, doesn't want to marry a man. Here we've got things working the other way around. There's a man who doesn't want to marry a woman, but it's a bit more complicated than that. So tell us about it.
0: Well, also what's interesting about it, as you said, is Isabel Isviel is a Catholic and she is trying to use the Protestant consistory to get a Protestant man to marry her. So she is also um, a young woman. Um, the man to whom she says she's engaged, Claude Dupont, is a weaver. He's a, a, probably around 20 years old. Um, and... Um, he she says they've gone through the ceremony of promising to marry each other. In this in the 16th century in France, this is um you drink in the name of marriage, in colloquial custom. You say you're going to marry each other, you have a drink in the name of marriage, and you promise to give your bodies to each other. Um, and that's engagement. If you then go on to have sex, you're married, without having to have an intervention of a of a a priest. And She says that this has taken place, that they had gone for a walk together, they chatted about a vineyard that she owned, um, and they had gone to the house of her uncle, um, Jacques Dubois, and there they had drunk in the name of marriage and promised to marry each other. Claude Dupont completely denies it um, and is also quite insulting about Isabel. He says that she's a papist, uh, she's a drunk um, and a whore, um, and a thief. And he repeats this character assassination more than once. And he also says that she's gone to the nearby town of Arlen been pregnant whilst she was there, or, or had been pregnant and gone to Arl to give birth. So, he, you know, he thinks very badly of her, and he refuses to marry her. But the problem is, she keeps... To her version of the story, where he keeps changing his. So after a while, he says, "Okay, well, look, we did go to her uncle's house, yeah. um, and we did drink, but it wasn't in the name of marriage. Um, and I also said I could only do it if my mother consented. I
3: only really had sex once. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really count, right?
0: <laughs> um, and uh, that's when the mo- the mother who lives some distance away, his mother, um, obviously hears a about all of this and turns up in absolutely furious and says she will disown her son if he marries this woman um that, that you know she doesn't consent and the age of consent under French law is really important um by this period of time a man has to get consent from his parents if he, or a male guardian if he's under the age of 30 she's his age is a bit in in doubt at this point um she says uh, he he is under the age of 30 and I don't consent and he's not going to marry her on et etc et cetera. Et cetera and it looks like it's all um going to go horribly wrong for for isabel but the problem is for claude is that isabel has good witnesses she has a, four people who can say look yeah, it did happen the engagement has been enacted in all the ways that the church say it should be the consistory still clearly don't want to favor this catholic girl instead of the protestant man but he's being uh, to rights he's but there um it goes up to a synod a level above the, the consistory and Suddenly out of the woodwork appears an uncle of Claude Dupont who says actually he is old enough um, to consent. He may look 20 but he's actually over the age of 30 and I give my um, authority for him to marry anyway and Isabel gets her man. Whether she wants him or not by that point after he's called her a thief and a drunk, I don't know. But perhaps she had been pregnant, in which case it would have been hard for her to find another spouse and um, she makes the most of the opportunity.
3: Now I'm not going to claim to be an expert on marriage However... You have been married quite a while. Ten years. Thank you very much.
0: So that's, you know, it's... I'm not saying an expert. expert.
3: I mean, I'm experienced. That's a different thing um however this doesn't sound like the basis for um a happy marriage but if you've been up for the consistory calling each other sort of you know whore slat drunk all of this sort of thief all of this sort of stuff um do we know how things turned out between them
0: we don't and this is the the sad thing is that the cases then disappear so sometimes i was able to follow cases up sometimes in um the baptismal records, for example, I could find, you know, then they went on to have five children and, or, or, and you know, know how long they lived. But unless something else goes wrong between them, they don't come before the consistory. And that's one of the downsides of this set of records is that most of the time I'm working with where there have been moments of social breakdown, where people have disagreed, where they have a difference of opinion. Happy marriages don't tend to make it into the sources. They write white, as the famous expression goes. So, um, so if they were happily married thereafter, or even if he left her, and there's no sort of paper trail, we we wouldn't know about it.
3: When you're working through these cases, I mean, do you start to feel sort of close to these characters? And is it frustrating um, when they then disappear from your record? Or, or can you not allow yourself that kind of emotional engagement?
0: I would like to say that I'd managed to maintain a certain objectivity throughout, but actually, of course, you get really engaged with the cases and want to know the outcome. And it's such moments of victory when I've discovered some other reference to them in some other set of sources um, and, you know, know uh, you know, one particular case I was looking into where a woman doesn't get the man, she says, has promised to marry her. But I was cheered to learn that sort of, uh, you know, a year later she's married to somebody else. <laughs> and I'm like, well, OK, so obviously, it, you know, things have worked out. It's OK for her. Um, but most of the time they disappear.
3: So th- we've talked about two cases which pertain to marriage. Um, one of the other big categories of cases that comes up before the consistory is sexual assault, sexual misconduct in, in sort of broader sense. Tell us a little bit about um, andavality. andavality. Uh, who found her husband and a maidservant committing adultery, I believe on a sack. Um, she's a classy guy. Uh, and she goes after them with uh, a most unlikely cooking implement um, and not in a good way. Uh, tell us a little bit about this case. and uh, Because th- this is, I mean, it has elements of sort of what in an English context would be Chaucerian um, boardiness about it. Uh, but it also has... A victim as well, um, maybe even more than one victim to it. So uh, talk us through this particular case.
0: Yeah, so quite a lot of the cases uh, that appear are cases where we've got um, an older male employer having sex with a a servant girl. Um, At this time, this is an age of life cycle service. So um, people go into service at the age of about 13, women particularly, um, and then they're trying to raise money for their dowry, which can take 10 or 15 years. So... Until the mid-twent- their mid-twenties, they're in a house with um, um, an older man, and quite a lot of these women have sexual relations with older men or are sexually assaulted. Who knows what happens in this particular case. This man is called Pierre Cordonie, and his wife, Anne Vality, they keep their own names, finds him having sex with this maidservant on two occasions in a room just below the main house, which is used for... Um, bolting um grain and wheat. Um, and so when she finds them on this sack, where presumably the grain had been carried in, she hits them around the head with a
3: sieve. And first thing that came to hand. First thing Gotta that came be. to hand,
0: exactly. So um and what's amazing about this story is she never appears before the consistory. We never have her testimony. We just have other people who've seen her. So there's um a man called Pierre Balafrat who had seen her coming out of um, her house crying and saying to her neighbours she couldn't believe her husband had done such a thing and they should take care to make sure their husbands didn't do that sort of thing with their maids and telling the story. Um, And so we have testimony from other people around it. In the end, she goes absolutely silent. She's called before the consistory but won't come, which is interesting in itself because clearly, if you want to have a happy marriage, the last thing you want to go and do is denounce your husband in front of the consistory and say he did this, unless you particularly want to get revenge by that point. It seems that she decides to bury the hatchet and remain silent. But we know about this incident because other people talk about it.
3: And what of the poor maidservant?
0: She gets sacked. Ha! Huh. Um, and, uh, no pun intended, and we don't even know her name, unusually. Uh, most of the time, at least, they get named. But but I can't chase her down because she's not even named in this case.
3: Um. I think you you alluded to the the villain of this next case um, a little earlier, but uh, tell us about another serving girl who's assaulted while she's in service. Um, Jeanne de Gosside. Jeanne, Jeanne Gosied. Yes, There's she. No yes,
0: Jeanne is um, also known as La Gascon because she's from Gascony, and she's a servant girl, and she gets pregnant by the womanizer I've already mentioned, Pierre Corderny, um, who is the um, father-in-law of her employer. And he's a sailor, and this is one of a number of times where he impregnates younger women. Um, And he owns up to it as well, and he doesn't have any shame about it. And this is a particularly sad case because she gets pregnant, um, tries to disguise it for some period of time, and she appears um, first in the sources when a married couple bring a baby to Montauban to be baptized into the faith of its father, as in as a Protestant, um, and when the story was investigated, it becomes clear that she had become pregnant um, um, and gone to her employer for help, and her employer had said that she should take some medicine with which to bring on the menstruation, i.e., to cause abortion, um, uh, and cause a surgeon called Pierre Gobi to come and see her. But it turns out, you know, she's already far too far gone. Um, but obviously she gets hold of something um, because the next snippet we have is from one of her female friends called Astro Kaplan who says that Jan came around to her house um, to stay the night and said that she was taking this medicine to purge her liver, which was overburdened. Um, and Astro says, well, clearly that's not the case. You know, you've, you've got a big belly and your big breasts... Um, uh, you you must be pregnant. You can't tell me that you're not pregnant. And we have this direct speech reported, at which point Jeanne, you know, obviously relieved perhaps to, to be able to tell her friend, says, yes, actually she is pregnant. She's seven months pregnant. She's pregnant by this man, Pierre Cordony, and she is so wretched and despairing that she is carrying with her a knife that, to kill herself um, if this medicine doesn't work. Um, and so that gives us an insight into how... Servant girls might feel. If they're made pregnant outside of marriage, they become unemployed, they have a child to raise, um, and they their chances of marriage in the future are very slim. Um, and there's no consequence at all, really, for the, the man in question. But the story has a sort of happy ending in that because we see her um, sending the baby to be baptized into the faith of his father we learn about the case. It comes to the consistory's attention. And so Pierre Courteney is called to justice and it looks like Jeanne has manufactured the situation in order to create exactly that effect.
3: Explain that a little bit further. She's manufactured the situation in order to bring him into the public eye and and have this time of reckoning.
0: Well, she's Catholic and um, so she has to deputise a couple to take him, the child, not just to be baptized anywhere, but she says, take the the child into the the city of Montauban, which is where the has occurred. So it's happening before his church. And then when your baby is baptized, you name the father. So this couple names the mother and father. And so it directs the light of the church onto um, this illegitimate pregnancy.
3: So in a way that It was possible, even if there are many elements within society and institutionally that are kind of loaded against women. uh, It is possible, as we've seen from a couple of these cases, for women to use this system uh, to their advantage in some way, either to bring uh, men to a a form of social uh, reckoning or justice or just to have their voices heard. Exactly.
0: And I think there is something in that... Even if they don't get what they want the fact that somebody has heard their case that they've had it written down which you know has an almost sort of mystical quality at this point in time for most people who are illiterate that someone has paid attention to them is considered really important and there is a, a level of justice they occasionally can get the man they want to marry them to marry them they can get some sort of um retribution or some sense of justice um, it is a limited amount of power in a patriarchal society but it is something and what it does expose is the way that women tried to get this, that they would approach the consistory or other authorities in pursuit of their own ends. Even when they didn't get what they wanted, the fact is that they're demonstrating so much agency um in order to try and uh, and get it in the first place. And so it makes us think again about notions of women being completely oppressed. Um women did have power in a in a in a very quotidian way and they would and they could use it um, in domestic, in their domestic circumstances.
3: There's one more case that maybe you could say a little bit more about, which is about three women in Gonge carrying out superstitious rituals to heal a child. Because this case is interesting, I think, because it it doesn't quite touch on the same issues of sexual morality, adultery, sexual assault that we've been talking about so far. So uh, maybe broaden out the scope of other things that Consistory could deal with.
0: Yes, yeah, so this is um, a story of these three women who turn up with a sick child um, to Gange, which is a little village in the Ceven, um, and they get the help of a local um, cunning woman. Um, so somebody who was involved in making herbs and... Um, healing, and she's called Don Figueres, but she's also known as La Sauvage, which means the wild woman. And they go to make um, basically a sort of offering before St. Peter. They light a number of candles, they put a loaf of bread out, um, and they do this in the cemetery. And all of this is considered by the consistory to be sort of deeply superstitious, um, uh, this kind of ritualistic uh, healing um or attempt to heal a child rather than just simply pray is uh, entirely forbidden and this instance is uh, an interesting example of ritual they light nine candles they you know they do perform all this before um before this saint but We have all sorts of examples of women doing this, going to see a local soothsayer to have a prayer, or perhaps it's an incantation said over a child, Um, perhaps there's some writing or a bell rung over the child, all these things. And the church finds all of this deeply problematic because they're trying to encourage a faith that is shorn of all this ritual and all this superstition and is just very simple one of belief. And yet at the same time, we see even in these really orthodox Protestant cities people clinging on to these vestiges of either Catholic ritual or more superstitious ritual because when you're dealing with the healing of a child it's something you know you really care about um, and they are seeking solace in it and in some ways the church doesn't offer that to them.
3: How long does this system of the consistory last in French history?
0: So it's only um, a mere more less than 150 years where it sets up in 1559 um, and is completely at an end by 1685 because Louis XIV revokes the Edict of Nantes. And the Edict of Nantes had been um, a declaration allowing Protestants' freedom to worship in certain areas of France. Um, And by revoking it, he says that, that it's not permissible to be anything other than Catholic. In France, And so the Protestants are sent to the galleys, um, ships, or, or they are imprisoned, and many of them flee. And then we have this huge Huguenot diaspora um, across the world as a result of that. But in practice, um, I stopped using the records in around 1615, because after that, the church starts to decline in its level of confidence. And so as records for the sort of thing I was interested in as sources of social history, they become less rich, Um so it's only a really, you know, short period of time. I I look at them for about 60 years. Um, and so we have this, you know, insight for, for these few decades. But I think what they're showing us is um, a, an insight into a form of behaviour that is going on otherwise, it's just that we don't have records capturing it at, at other times.
3: So this is a, a you know a really amazing kind of window into a, a sort of snapshot of just a few decades of French society that we have existing in those records.
0: And exactly, and we shouldn't think there's anything particularly exceptional about the women that I'm looking at. They just happen to be um, have their stories written down, and so we can read about them. But we can imagine that either side of those sixty years, women are still trying to pursue justice and to, to force um, men to marry them, or to or to get out of marriages to people they don't want to be married or whatever it is, because, you know, there's no reason to suggest that these are particularly unusual.
3: People have been hitting their husbands with sieves for sleeping with their maids for, you know, time immemorial. It's just that at this point we can uh, we can see it happening. Uh, it's, it's, it's been written down. I, I just want to ask you one more question, which is, um, I suppose, to talk more generally about um, about the practice of history and about how we're doing history today. Um This feels like a book that's really, really germane to the times, you know, to the early 21st century when you've been writing it, in the sense that uh, it's about women's narratives, women's voices. It's about uh, understanding a period in which the patriarchy or, you know, a patriarchal society has worked in a particular way, loaded pretty much against women. Did you? approach writing this book specifically as a kind of a women's history book or is it just a book that happens to uh, touch on the female experience
0: if i had started this research um in the last couple of years as opposed to you know more than 15 years ago then i would certainly have looked equally at the stories from men's perspective um but it was partly about the copiousness of the sources i look at 1200 cases in, in this book and I read a lot more those are the ones that um have been useful to writing this um and so at the time when I was deciding to do it it was just a way of filtering the material somehow to focus on women's narratives and also because it gave an insight into women's power in a way that I felt that other records hadn't done by that point um and it had things to say about women in society now I would, as I say, I would also want to think about how that had implications for men, um, And if I were to go back and read them all all over again, that would be what I'd be drawing out. But I do think there is something about this present age. If you think about recent books that have been published, um, a lot of them are giving the other side of the story, whether that's in fiction, thinking of, you know, Natalie Haynes recently writing a book about um uh, you know the siege of troy or or all the books from the ancient writers but telling the women's perspective or Halle rubenhold telling the story of the the victims of jack the ripper there does seem to be a sense in which we are finally recognizing that perhaps it's worth paying attention to that 50 percent of society whose stories haven't necessarily been told up until this point
3: and it's so often been said oh you can't tell the stories of women the records simply don't exist and I think what your book proves um amply and brilliantly and elegantly and uh and surprisingly entertainingly for a, a book that you know sprang out of a PhD thesis and that's a I mean that's a wholeheartedly as a compliment <laughs> uh what this this brilliant book of yours shows is that it is absolutely possible to write about women's experiences in history um and in doing so, produce a book that illuminates um, so much about society in the 16th century, in the early 17th century, but uh, but but now as well. Um, I think we're coming towards the the end of our our conversation, which is, is a source of great regret to me. Um, although I can talk to you anytime. Uh our listeners uh, are going to bid us farewell. So I would I would just take this opportunity, I think, to recommend. With every fiber of the fabric of my being, uh, Susanna Lipscomb's new book, *The Voices of Nîmes: Women, Sex, and Marriage in Reformation Languedoc*, Um, and I'll read one more. I'll embarrass you by reading one more of the encomia from uh, from the back of the book, which is by Kate Moss, the best-selling author of *Labyrinth*. She says this is a scholarly, extensive, and imaginative piece of history. Essential reading for all of those interested in the hidden stories of the Reformation and in hearing the everyday voices so often left out of the history books. I don't think we can add anything to that.
4: That was Susanna Lipscomb in conversation with Dan Jones. The Voices of Neem, Women, Sex and Marriage in Reformation Languedoc is out now, published by OUP. Meanwhile, Dan's latest book, Crusaders, was released earlier this month, and you can hear him discussing it on the episode that we put out on the 9th of September. And you can catch both Dan and Susanna at our History Weekend events at Winchester and Chester this autumn. Find out more details and purchase tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Uett and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when Max Hastings will be talking about the Dan Busters.